Hi. Uh, I'm Professor Dollar. I'm just here to introduce the introducer, uh, to thank the Dean of Humanities, uh, to thank our TAs, uh, and to uh, remind you to turn your cell phones off and to uh, remind you that these are being recorded and that they um, are available at the library's website shortly after the reading. So um, it's a nice little favor they do for us all. Uh, Amelia Glazer is going to introduce Bhaktan, and um, then we're going to hear a reading. So here we go. Amelia. All right. Well, it's, it's my pleasure to introduce Bogdan Sucheva, who is a professor of mathematics at Cal State Fullerton, working in differ differential geometry. So I hope you all came to hear a talk about differential geometry. Um, no, he's also an award-winning uh, writer of short fiction and novels. Um, much of Bogdan Sucheva's work is about a strange time in history, a time when the country, Romania, um, was still a part of the Eastern Bloc before the 1989 fall of the Iron Curtain, this period in Romania brought vividly to life by Bogdan's descriptions of history's rapid change in course is fascinating to me on a kind of personal note. Um, it was in this period in the late 1980s that posters of Romanians, um, these ones happened to be gymnasts, um, lined my bedroom walls. Um, I read with bated breath as Nadia Comaneci, you know, made her way out of Romania to the United States just before the fall of Ceausescu. Um, if my high school had offered Romanian instead of Russian, I probably would be reading Bogdan's work in the Romanian original right now. Um, having discovered Professor Sucheva's work years later, I'm, I'm transported back to this time, 20 years ago, of enormous change in Eastern Europe, therefore enormous change throughout the rest of the world, a time that in some ways perhaps might be compared to what is now taking place throughout the, the Arab world. Um, Bogdan Sucheva has been honored on multiple occasions for his writing. His first short story, Empire of Belated, Gen of Belated Generals, told of a communist general who attempts to hold on to his power after the fall of the Berlin Wall. This received a local literary award in Romania in 1993. Professor Sucheva studied math at the University of Bucharest and simultaneously began his writing career by working as a journalist. Uh, in 96, he entered the Department of Mathematics at Michigan State University and continued to write fiction. He received his PhD in 2002. His first collection of short stories appeared in 2002 under the title Empire of Belated Generals and Other Stories. Um, one of the stories in this volume, Daddy Wants TV Saturday Night, is the story of surviving the everyday inconveniences of communist Romania and of the extraordinary lengths individuals might go to in order to reclaim their free will, even if that free will involved watching television in the evening. Professor Sucheva published Coming from an Off-Key Time in 2004. It's been the subject of um, not only 50-some book reviews, but also of, of a few scholarly studies, including, I understand, a couple of um, a thesis projects. Uh, the novel has been translated into Hungarian, Bulgarian, English, and will soon appear in French. Uh, the Romanian literary scholar Sanda Kordos has written of this novel that it is, quote, a nostalgic chronicle of Bucharest, subtly gliding between the eccentric and the exceptional, between the clownish and the metaphysical, um, the apocryphal gospel of a world with far too many vari um, variants, 
but, uh, but incapable of redemption, racked by ideas and blindly seeking a shepherd more than freedom, distilling the off-key time of our wounded, raw, heightened senses into an impeccably literary construct, resting on solid cultural foundations and displaying genuine strength in the exploration of a reality beyond the frontiers of the real. Most recently, Bogdan Sucheva completed a novel, The Night Someone Died for You, which came out in Romanian in 2010. Um, and this has been translated into English, still will be, hopefully. <laughs> One of you will translate it into English soon. Um, this novel tells of a group of students who spend the night of December 25th, 1989, in a geology department in Bucharest, taking refuge from nearby gunfire. And they only learn, the students only learn of the tragedy that took place overnight the next morning. According to Bogdan, his literary intention was to invite a serious reflection on what really happened with Romanian society over the last several decades. So it's my pleasure to introduce Bogdan Sucheva, who will be reading from his 2004 novel. I understand. Thank you very much. Um, thank you very much for your invitation, and uh, it's, uh, it's my pleasure to be here. I uh, visited several times the math department, but I've never been on this part of campus. And, um, and I like, uh, you know, just a short introduction first, because the... Um, beginning is uh, somehow contextual. I'm going to read a few pages at the beginning of the novel. And um, I should say that uh, uh, anybody uh, here uh, likes Forrest Gump? It's, uh, okay. So Forrest Gump wins. So why is Forrest Gump funny? Because there's, you know, this guy who doesn't really get it, and he happens to be in the key moments, the most important moments of American history, He's right there and he sees. He's the witness. He doesn't really get it, but he's the witness. Well, uh, I, when I uh, thought about this uh, story, I had uh, something similar in mind, um, but it was a little bit different. And um, I think the idea came, the idea came when I read, um, maybe I read the 20th time, a page of um, a Romanian classic that's unfortunately unavailable in English. Uh, it's Mateu Caragiale which has a very fundamental novel for Romanian letters, published in 1933. And I used that fragment on, um, um, as a motto for the novel. And I'm going to start by uh, reading the motto. Uh, this is supposed to be um, like a description of Bucharest and uh, something nice about Bucharest. Bucharest had remained faithful to its odd custom of corruption. At every step, we remembered that we were at the gates of the Orient. But nevertheless, the debauchery astonished me less than the insanity that dominated in every case. I confess that I had not expected to see such numerous and various species of folly flourishing to meet such unbridled madness. As I was not to find almost anyone who, sooner or later, did not reveal some vice or another, anyone whom, unexpectedly, I did not have occasion to hear raving. In the end, I lost hope of meeting in the flesh, of, uh, in the flesh and blood any human being wholly sound of mind. Well, just kidding. So um, I was thinking, you know, what's so interesting about uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall? Um, because for uh, quite a few years, actually, um, I want to be precise here, about two years exactly, Romania functioned without a constitution. 
which is something like a strange experiment in contemporary history. And um, if you don't have really the ground rules, anybody can express any belief, and it's, uh, it's a very strange stage. Um, on the other hand, there was another thing about uh, modern history in Romania. Um, maybe you know this stuff, and you know, sorry for cross-posting, but uh, the first uh, king was received in uh, Romania in 1866. He was coming from a, a German dynasty, and he was uh, described by some as the savior. And uh, since then, every leader that Romania ever had was depicted as a savior. And I think it's the greatest number of saviors per capita in the world. So it's in Bucharest, and combined with Mateo Caragiale's remark, this doesn't look nice. But uh, how would you tell a story about such a world? How would you, how would you describe this? And um, um, this is the context. And from now on, I shall not speak anymore. I'm just going to read. Chapter 1. The storyteller is I. Even back then, you knew the end of the history, and you saw, just as a bird peering down from the upper air sees the ends, and the torrent coming at the anthill, as the ends sun themselves, everything that was to come, from the moment of his entry into Bucharest, to the last gasp of his prophecies. When he entered the city, no one expected him to cover himself in glory, and he did not come riding on a donkey beneath olive branches, although the expectation that was floating in the air had long been foreordained to him. We were all expecting a miracle. Do you remember the 90s with all their mysteries and untold history? Behold, the time has now come to write their true chronicle. For a long time it was said that on his arrival he had no face, that not until later did his visage coalesce in contact with the city air, or rather in contact with itself, an unheard-of coagulation of being. It was said that he had been born in the Transylvanian village of Weisdorf, which nowadays no longer exists or, it, or is marked on the maps, from a Saxon father and a Serbian mother, and that from the very moment she raised him in her arms, the midwife had been astonished by the mark that covered his chest, in which at first, at first sight seemed merely an ugly deformity, a birthmark. And so they believed until the day when someone saw the babe with his chest barred and said, Holy Virgin, Mother of God, do you know what that is? What that mark is? The truth is that the peasants of that village, which time forgot, had never traveled far, and their minds did not dwell on things which lay beyond the bounds of the village. Seeing the child's barred chest, in tracing the mark imprinted on the translucent skin, that old man more widely traveled than the others said. The middle line here is Victory Avenue, then Georgiou Dej Boulevard, Victory Square, the Titan District. This circle is the Ring Road, and this semicircle is Barracks Road. Here is Herastro Lake, and these are the streets of the Linden Quarter. When his chest wrinkled up, the map will shift, forming alternations, successions, slippages and expanses, corresponding not to a single time, but to a limitless series of images whose beginning and end were obscure. Things could just as well be narrated from end to beginning, and this is what the, that peasant saw, 
although he was unschooled and lacking in any prophetic gift, for he said fearfully, I have never heard the like before. I don't know what kind of a birthmark this is, but it looks like what you'd never ever imagine. In fact, Ava said that it was not like that at all. It was impossible for a map of Bucharest to appear on the skin of a baby whose mother was Serbian and who had been born in the village of Valarea below the Hoyu mountain to a family of sheep breeders who of old used to take their flocks as far as Tarazagora and then back again every spring, but who today take them up to the Gemenashi fold where the only white bears in the Carpathian mountains had once been sighted. An old midwife is supposed to have delivered the child and to have recognized the birthmark when she watched him, a clump of blood and fortune and breath, saying, This is the sign of the end of all times, or the signs of all times together. And she was also to say, prophesizing from the very start something that an entire nation has been awaiting for centuries. It is a map of the second Jerusalem, a sign begotten, not made, a sign from the Lord in which demands worship. For which reason she spat on the babe thrice to guard against the evil eye, lifted him into the air toward the dwellings of the four wings, for the four, four winds, and then preferred him to the sun. It is not known whether the tale was concocted afterward, when his room was being trodden night after night by thousands of phantasms, and he had begun to drape his mirrors with white cloths and to pray aloud. But that was another time. Later, they said something else about him, that he had been the only man under the sun to be born twice. The two lives glimmered far from each other and simultaneously, but in neither, in neither was his body whole or solid, but merely a mist, so that you would have been able to see through it, just as there are many transparent children throughout Valachia. And the famed entrance into Bucharest, of which some rumors told, would have been no more than the meeting of the two lives, the intertwining of the two bodies, the weaving of two hearts into one, the superimposition of sign upon sign on two chests. This process cannot have been painless, and all we know, having read the documents, the records of some of the witnesses, the newspapers from the time, and according to the things we too recall, is that on the evening of November 4, 1992, an ambulance with vehicle registration number 17B1504 brought an emaciated, feverish young man to the emergency section of the municipal hospital, and that, in the first moments, no one paid him any mind. We have no X-rays which might have recorded what was happening to his body at that moment, nor any illusions that the first medical observations were correct or sufficiently attentive. They did not know what they were looking at. They had that unique, admirable, wonderful phenomenon beneath their eyes, and they did not know what they were looking at. It is human nature to suppose that every being with two hands, two eyes, and a chest is necessarily a man. However, the chemical reality is surpassed by the metachemical, by virtue of which each one of us is different although the prejudice is widespread that we are all made up of the same stuff. His fever rose endlessly, and it was only when it reached 44 Celsius 
that the nurse observed that his eyes were shining much too brightly and his lips were murmuring and his veins were boiling as though Transylvanian and Valachian destiny were being mingled as though the heavens were boiling together with the loam. She heard him say something and this is what she thought it was. Follow me with angel cohorts to the new birth in time. It made no sense, did it? It would have been no different from the delirium of any one of the raving madmen in the world had it not been for the crystal clarity of the diction, the correct and clear pronunciation, as though what must be said had not yet been said. And now the chosen moment had come, the hour when the air would whirl words around him, restorative words, healing spells, binding formulas, most of which had never before been heard, spoken, thought. Hmm, yes, said Dr. Pamphilia, who happened to be on duty. There is nothing out of the ordinary that is wrong with him. He has a fever, typical of those they've been bringing in off the streets lately. The glue sniffers who sleep in the sewers. Everything's normal. Give him an aspirin. Allow him to leave. On his hospital discharge sheet, the name Vespasian Moisa could be read, inscribed by a careless hand. It is the first document about him, because before, uh, before it, there is nothing. No birth certificate, no school report, no vaccination record, absolutely nothing. It is here that the story of beginnings concludes, and also our documentation for the facts now become as fine as Bible paper, as spider webs, as thoughts of love. We pick up the thread of history a month later at a lecture which professor of history Diaconescu, one of the town's worthies, was about to deliver to an almost empty auditorium. It was winter. At that time, the professor was nearing the final horizon of the theory that had been his life's work. He had first expounded it at the history conference in 85, where he had garnered merrily shrugs and smiles then he had worked on it together with renowned physician uh, Apollodor Argir, constructing arguments for the details or other technical components of the medical side of the theory. In the first instance, the professor had had no success of any kind when expounding his ideas, perhaps also because dictatorial oppression quelled in its swaddling close the energy of many superb ideas back then, the enthusiasm of many inventors and creators, as well as the elegant proofs of many savants, mathematicians, logicians, philosophers, and scientists. Professor Diaconescu drank coffee without sugar, was a vegetarian, wore sandals without socks in order to ensure continuation aeration of the foot. However hard it was for him, he remained true to, his, to this principle even in winter, and talked much about Sartre, one of his favorite philosophers. At the political level, he was an unconditional admirer of Gandhi. After the professor's lecture, the young man who presented himself as Vespasian Moisa asked him, have you thought of writing a book about all this? The professor felt awkward, sitting there in front of an empty hall in the presence of five or six members of the naturist club. My dear man, answered the professor with an absent smile, Neither literature nor theory can influence history. He was very much in the right. All the pages to which he had put the finishing touches were invariably marred by a literary note. In essence, his theory had nothing literary about it. 
But the lyrical air that absolutely all his texts acquired gave them a confused character, which captivated for a moment, but no more than a moment, the reader or audience. And this is what it was all about. According to the classic theories of the 50s and the 60s, the Jato Dacians are supposed to have arrived north of Danube around the year 3000 BC. In the 70s, an idea began to be accredited, according to which the Jato Dacians had arrived together with the first waves of Indo-Europeans probably a thousand years earlier. Professor Diaconescu was more categorical. He confidently put forward the year 5000 BC and elaborated vehement arguments using heterogeneous passages from ancient writers such as Dio Cassius, Herodotus, and Apuleius, as well as more contemporary authors. Once this part of the theory had been thoroughly demonstrated, the professor argued that even back then, the Jato Dacians spoke the same Romanian as we speak today, which made the language more than 7,000 years old and transformed our everyday idiom into the oldest living tongue on the planet. Of course, as the professor argued polemically, there is a theory that Romanian is a descendant of Latin. It is a widespread theory, and in some cases it is even studied in school. Maybe, of course. But that aspect of succession ought to be a question much older than the year 5000 BC, which is to say it doesn't even concern us today. The essential fact is that the Romanian language is an extremely ancient idiom and that it must be read and interpreted in terms of a code. We can speak of a true understanding of the Romanian language only after deciphering the initial and highly secret meaning codified in syllables and letters of every word. As the Romanian language has a phonetic and orthography, decipherment does not depend on writing. An analogous truth would have been arrived at, uh, would have been arrived at even if texts written in Slavonic script had been analyzed. The professor was convinced that beyond the words of Romanian, there lies a code that not even the wisest initiates had, have ever deciphered. He liked to say that the Romanian language is the combination to the safe of the universe. It is a means of access at mankind's fingertips for discovery and understanding, as though God had slipped the house key under the mat. That, uh, I'm going to stop the first part here. So, uh, I'm not sure how I'm doing with the time. Okay. So, um, pretty much this, um, uh, if you took me seriously, then it's bad. Uh, but it's, um, uh, the whole story, the whole context, uh, it develops toward the, um, um, religious sect, and this religious sect um, um, pretty much is under um, surveillance by the secret police, who is still very much concerned about the potential development of this movement, which has the character of Vespasian Moinsa in its center. And um, um, at some point we managed to see what happens behind the closed door in the, in the secret police headquarters. And um, here is one of the officers in charge with, you know, researching the case, um, collecting information about this movement. That June evening, Colonel Foxenanu sat leaning his elbows on the windows, uh, windowsill of a cafe. Wearing a raincoat and sunglasses, he looked the part of a secret agent. agent. The sun cast a russet light along the length of Victoria Avenue. 
At that very moment, from the other side of the road, weaving among the cars, a tabby cat approached the window of the cafe. After rubbing his back against a green post, freshly painted by, the, by municipal workmen, the tomcat said, I have the honor, Colonel, sir. I'm ready to present you with the surveillance report. Fire away, I'm listening, said the colonel, sipping his coffee. They spend the whole day at a prayer, doing breathing exercises. They don't talk about politics. They are neither Christian Democrat nor excessively liberal in their convictions. On the other hand, they don't have any social Democrat potential. The colonel tapped his cigarette ash outside the window. The tomcat stepped on on one side, watching the scattering ash with his green eyes. Are there any Hungarians among them? I haven't seen any, said the tomcat. Uh Uh-huh, said the colonel. Go on. Vespasian Moisa talks to them sometimes. They ask him questions, and he answers in parables. There are all kinds of fables which the disciples then debate. I haven't seen any miracles. I haven't seen any weapons. They haven't discussed the Hungarian nationalist question regarding Transylvania, and I haven't noticed any links with Hungarian Protestant churches. They haven't talked about any plan for the federalization of Romania. Hmm, said Colonel absently. What the hell are they then? Are your orders for me to continue the investigation? Asked the tomcat. Go back and sit on the stove or the bookshelf, and stay there until I give you further instructions. We have to find out. It's just not possible for there to be a religious cult of such a size, active in the very heart of the capital, and for us not to know what it is they're up to. Religious sect or madmen, we have to clarify it. Understood. The colonel lowered his sunglasses and looked the tomcat in the eyes. How would you classify them, lieutenant? What kind of movements do they represent? The tomcat pretended to be washing under his tail for a moment and then answered. I don't know. Probably a kind of reformist orthodox order. I don't think we've dealt with anything similar in recent times, but I can't say for sure. Do you think it would be useful if we consulted an expert in religious matters? Maybe we should find more in the meantime, said the tomcat. The colonel took a drag on his cigarette and gazed around him. Very well. That is what we'll do. It's too early to make predictions. Better you tell me, has Pleshoyanu been behaving himself? Did he knock around the bag or handle it with care? Oh, with care, Colonel. Thank you for your concern. The Tomcat made to leave. Listen, said the Colonel. At your orders, said the Tomcat, his whiskers fluttering in the breeze. You are late this evening. See that it doesn't happen again. The Tomcat vanished. He was weary, having run quite a way that evening. Crossing Mangueru Boulevard was becoming even ever more difficult given the increased number of cars lately. Moreover, he had to cross the street without giving any hint that he knew anything about traffic regulations so as not to blow his cover. And on Maguero Boulevard, life and death are both just a matter of luck. Oh, uh, that boulevard is like five. You know, it's full of cars most of the time, so, yeah. Um, I think um, this is the second fantastic motive in the story. Everything else is like more, in a, more or less in a really style. So it's, um, even if the, the idea are borrowed from, um, I mean, even this um, crazy material that the characters are talking about, uh, this is borrowed from the history and the, all sorts of fancy theories 
discussed in the 30s in Romania. So that's, uh, that's really something coming from the real world. We just rearrange a little bit differently. And um, the third fragment is um, from the second half of the book when we finally find out what is this, this story with this tomcat who's, you know, observing extremists. Um, and we find out from the from a discussion in the headquarters of the secret police when the, um, the colonel is asked about the cat by his superior. <clears throat> um, the colonel smiled. The general was new as head of his department. There were certain things he did not know. In Colonel Foxenano's opinion, the opinion of a man who has seen many things in his life and survived a revolution on the streets, his direct superior was a general made to order in recent times on the wave of democratic politics. He didn't have much faith in him, but now that he was asking, he had to tell him. One of the basic rules of intelligence gathering is not to divulge your sources. Maybe we should have, he should have kept his mouth shut, but if the general found out from somewhere else, it would end badly. And so he had no choice but to tell him. We used a special cat, sir. You disguise the microphone as a cat, said the general, pleasantly surprised. Oh no, it's much more complicated than that. Uh, we have an officer disguised as a cat. <laughs> the general choked on his coffee. The colonel bowed polit politely, then went on. Allow me to inform you about the situation. The whole story began in 91, in August, to be ex exact. At the time, I was working at the Foreign Intelligence Service, where I was detached for six months. I worked for the Division for Collecting Information in the Soviet Union. The division operated from July 90 until September 91, when things changed and the USSR ceased to exist. At that time, we had a number of officers on missions, the, on missions there who were fluent Russian speakers and found themselves cut off in various places. Those were turbulent times, and things were very tangled, especially when we had to gather information on the turf of the former KGB. Their counter-espionage did not let anything get out of the country. They performed summary executions because not one of those murders would ever be investigated. We had lost two young lieutenants in six months alone, each with a bullet to the back of the, of the head. It was no joke. Well, Lieutenant Restaru was in Tashkent in August 91, where he had recruited a colonel from the general staff of the city's garrison. We were interested in obtaining information about Soviet troop movement in Central Asia. At that time, their army was repositioning in Central Asia zone. There were all kind of cost-cutting changes. We were following all this. And what good was that information to us? I don't think you mean we were getting ready to invade Asia. <laughs> to be honest, I don't know. We were ordered to get the information. And that is what we tried to do. Against the background of the breakup of the USSR, it was a bad idea. It wasn't a bad idea to see what was going on, to see what troops were being moved where. If they got the idea of tripling overnight the 14th Army, it would have been good for us to know where these troops were coming from, what the logistics were, and the morale situation. 
In addition, we could come across information useful in negotiations between various parties. In any case, our order was to get hold of the information, and Trestaru was in Tashkent. At one point, he suffered an unusual mishap. He was inside a civil building when he was attacked by a team of Uzbek counterspionage agents. What were they doing in Tashkent, I don't know. In theory, it wasn't their area, but that's what we've been able to establish. They attacked him, tied him up, gave him a paralyzing injection, and took him to one of their laboratories. They caught him, and they knew very well what his mission was. The source he hoped to recruit had probably been nothing more than bait, and now they intend to make, them, make him disappear. And in that laboratory, it seems um, that one of the KGB's division was preparing a new weapon, something <clears throat> based on cosmic rays, absolute vibrations of, or the devil knows what, they called it. The fact is that they used Lieutenant Tristaru as a guinea pig. They did an experiment on him. They irradiated him and turned him into a cat. The general remained motionless. A cat? Yes, a large ginger tomcat with green eyes. <laughs> Tristaru had been blonde with green eyes. It just goes to show. After a pause, the general asked, and how did he escape from the laboratory? Oh, they let him go. They weren't expecting his intellectual functions, voice, visual capacity, and other human characteristics to survive. They irradiated him, but they didn't completely turn him into a cat, not the brain. Under the tomcat's fur, he was still our Tristaro, just as much of a patriot, with the same abnegation and spirit of self-sacrifice for his country. <laughs> what became of him? Oh, he got back to Romania on a Tarom charter flight, stowed away in the cargo hold, and he reported back to me at the unit. He had gotten back from Tashkent unobserved, and I was the first person he spoke to. The general regarded him at length. We had two options, the colonel continued. The first was to keep him at my house and give him sources of milk. The second was to send him back into the field as undercover officer, which is what he was trained for. I discussed all these options with Restaru, he, and he was interested in continuing to work for me, which is to say, for me to send him on missions, and for him to report back to me. The situation was unusual to the highest degree, and we adapted ourselves to it as we went along. All of a sudden, there was a flicker of doubt in the general's eyes. Colonel, are you sure? He asked. It's a story for which all the documentation exists, said the colonel, smiling calmly. And where is Tristaru now? Oh, uh, he's shadowing Vespasian Moisa. We know what and where he prays. We know what he eats. We know what he says in his sleep. We have the best possible information because Tristaru is there on the stove in his room. Thank you, colonel, said the general. I understand the situation. We can get now... Uh, we can now get to work. You've done an excellent job. I congratulate you on your intelligence gathering. The colonel felt the volume of his thoracic cavity doubling. He stood to attention and looked straight ahead as the general left the room. Somehow troubled, the general returned to his office. He telephoned his secretary and told her, I'd like to have a word with the ministry's psychiatrist. Uh, please put me through as quickly as you can. I'm afraid it's urgent. Yeah, so um, 
I don't know if I uh, explain what happened in the motor, but uh, it's. Um, uh, by the way, tell me what, how I'm doing with the time. Otherwise, I'm uh, reading the book from back to. I have as many sections as you like. It has 24. <laughs> so what actually happened at the beginning of the 90s, there were all sorts of questions about uh, uh, taping telephones. And, you know, uh, um, we, had a, we had a Watergate every day. Yeah. Like, what is this about? Oh, it's a long story. And um, there was something else when I um, when I was in my um, undergrad school, um, I witnessed, I believe, in um, in the summer of '92, um, the Romanian Orthodox Church uh, has proclaimed a new wave of saints. I mean, it's kind of late in '92 to have new saints, but well, we have to make up for a while. And, uh, um, and that inspired um, another sect, because there are quite a few of them, and uh, if you do the direct sum, you get Bucharest. Chapter 9. Let me just make sure that... Uh, okay. <clears throat> Chapter 9. Only one flashlight was burning in the middle of the room in the unfinished block on Victory Square. It's impossible, shouted Darius when he heard the news. It is said that the tombstone of Stephen the Great in Putna Monastery moved in that very moment, said Negru. Lord God in heaven, that's impossible. The truth is that the idea of reincarnation is not exactly orthodox. The fact that they were talking about reincarnation unsettled them all. At first, Darius would not believe any of it. He clasped his hand to his head. He did not want to give credence to the rumor. Go on, said Darius. The one who went by the nickname the Gnaz said, it seems that the man really does remember things that happened in the 15th century. The story began a few months ago when he was hit by a truck somewhere in Nicolina. They took him to the emergency room and he lay in coma for two weeks. A lot of people thought he was done for. He had a serious head injury. But then he woke up and he was more coherent than before. Something has changed. He was a different man, as if he had gone back to being what he ought to have been beyond the crust of everyday life. That's right, said Negru. Darius looked at him for a long while. He could not see what there was to approve. And what he remembered, the Gnaz went on, were precise episodes from the past. He told the journalists from the Yash Chronicle that at the Battle of the High Bridge, the Moldavian army had not sent 40,000 men into the fray, as it is believed, but only 28,000. He told the story of the battle in the minutest, most exact detail. The article was published two months ago, but yesterday he was on, on, on the local television and he confirmed that he was the reincarnation of Stephen the Great. He said that he remembers his entire previous life precisely because he had reached that turning point between life and death where any barrier between lives is moved aside and the recovery of spiritual memory becomes possible. The physical memory is what the body remembers. 
The spiritual memory is what the soul has experienced during his long chain of reincarnations. This man can remember his last three lives. He was also reincarnated in the 17th century, but it wasn't an interesting life. On the other hand, what he says about the life prior to that one is astonishing. It looks that we're dealing with the reincarnated saint Stephen the Great. Darius cleared his throat. For some unknown reason, he did not seem very happy at the news. He said, um, I was sure he's like that. How can we know he's not just some loony who got run over by a truck and who's now seeing that historical film with Kozorich in the role of Stephen? That's what I thought at first. But after reading the interview and seeing the film recording Made in Yash, I, for one, was convinced. I think it's real. You know, there is something in it. I'd like to find out more before I rejoice, rejoice as much as you, brother, said Darius. I got hold of his telephone number last night, said the Gnias. I spoke with him. I've invited him to Bucharest. I told him about us. He'll be arriving in two hours on the intercity. I think we should decide what to do. What else can we do? Let's go to the train station, said Negru. That goes without saying, admitted Darius, in a voice less energetic than usual. But how are we going to tell, to tell who he is and what he wants? A moment of silence. Then with a playful smile, Darius said, We receive him as if we were convinced that he is the great Stephen. Then we'll bring him back here and talk to him. And we'll ask him about various historical events, things we know about, things for which we have verifiable, clear, clearly confirmed information. By the way, where is Nagu? Uh, Nagu is at home, answered Anyaz. Um, do you think uh, Nagu knows enough about uh, uh, Stephen the Great? Of course. Didn't he write an undergraduate, an undergraduate thesis on him? Don't you remember how much he stuffed our heads full of him? He's obsessed with Stephen the Great. Yeah. now, and um, for those of you who are part of my uh, translation seminar, um, after, well, once we're, we're done, um, we'll take a, a short break, and then you guys will come back, and we'll talk specifically about translation. And others who are in the audience are welcome to come back and, and join if you want to talk more about translation. Um, you're welcome. Questions for Bogdan? Well, I, I'm going to start. <laughs> um, your 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 cat, your um, this this character of the cat, it it, it seems to have stepped out of a Bulgakov novel, maybe out of two Bulgakov novels. And I'm wondering what your influences are here. Am I just imagining things that you're maybe drawing things from the um, the Russian avant-garde? Um, what are what are the things you're reading? What's um uh, talking about Bulgakov? I think um. um uh, the first, the first book I, I read by him was uh, was the White Guard, and then I uh, I read you know the um, I don't know what's the, the English title, the Dog's Heart, the heart, of a dog. heart of a Dog. I mean that was that was really impressive, and it, I, I I totally love Bulgakov, and you, you know you quote me here. Um, it's um, it's impossible. Of course, of course. I mean it's, that, it's, that's uh, definitely uh, something that you know. It's 
I don't. I never met anyone who didn't like uh, Bulgakov. At least in you know among my friends, and uh, you know that was something that uh, fortunately wasn't. Uh, I mean, was translated and was available, and um, um, it's this uh, old obsession about uh, the relationship between the Romanian culture and the Russian culture. And uh, I thought about uh, you know you have all these. Uh, um, characters, uh, each one of them obsessed in his own way, and everybody's obsessed about, uh, you know, s stories about KGB, and uh, uh, everybody has a plot in their mind, and uh, everything is uh, like coming out from uh, another bigger story that's uh, somehow preceding it. And I totally love that moment, I mean the 30s, uh, the literary 30s, and, and most of the Romanian references are from the 30s, and there are a couple of other things that are coming from outside Romania, but also about the same historical period, I guess. Yeah. So the short answer is yes. <laughs> yeah, please. I'm interested in the sort of uh, twin trails of, of <coughs> math and fiction writing and how you see them, where they intersect for you, or if they have a relationship. Um, here's the deal. You should never mix them. Never mix them. <laughs> yeah. Here's the reason. Um, if you try to, to do that, the room empties. <laughs> it's proved. No, I mean, it's, uh, if you really want to do something, you have to dedicate a full time to, to that particular thing. And, you know, it's, it's really difficult to, to do them both in the same time. I, mean, I don't think you reach any kind of depth if you, if you try to, you know, maybe more light on a certain project. And you have to do only one single thing at a time. And it's, if you manage to, you know, split the intervals and somehow buy time to dedicate it for any kind of other project, uh, that's fine. But I, I don't think they can be done simultaneously. I mean, I, I cannot do it. It's uh, almost impossible. It's very good to have one single idea. Yeah? So do you, define, do you find yourself dividing your year or, I mean, around your academic schedule or something? And Yeah, that, that would be nice to have a whole year, but I... Uh, the, the no, it's, what I'm usually doing, I'm trying to plan uh, sometimes even a couple of years ahead. And I can actually compute how much time I have for, you know, in the summers. Sometimes I rely on January, you know, it's, but in the same time I'm also doing research and I've been able to complete quite a few projects in, uh, in the summers. And uh, it really depends on uh, how much time I have and uh, how advanced the projects are. But I'm doing a lot of um, a lot of research for all this. For example, here I didn't use all the material that I, uh, but I read a lot about the uh, 15th century, about uh, all these obsessions about uh, medieval stuff. It's uh, it, there are all sorts of ideas like this in uh, uh, in the southeastern Europe. Like for example, the, um, I don't want to offend anybody, and I don't want to say anything that, that's impolite. But you know, this this, this interest of uh, Serbians for uh, for Kosovo is very similar to the Romanians' interest for the moment of glory that they view in the past and you really have to do research about that it's not something that you really know and uh, all these historical details have to be uh, researched that's something I can do during the school year because you know it's, it's like you know we're reading for pleasure a lot of stuff and I have a lot of research on my uh, tools I can read anywhere that's something you can do now but in the summer it's I mean to really write it's, especially if you erase a lot and if you trash a lot it's uh, you need time What is your next big project that you're working on, and what was your source of inspiration for it? Oh, uh, uh, right now, what's 
it's kind of a moment between projects and I uh, really, honestly, you know, with my whole open heart, I'm not writing right now. <laughs> but I, you know, it's, I have a couple of ideas, but they're not very close and, uh, um, I mean, the most extreme I did, it was a very short novel, it has like 110 pages, but I worked on that like 17 years, really, because it wasn't really right and I kept going back and forth and, um, uh, so I can do all sorts of extreme things. It's not, not this one, it's, it's something else. So it's really something that you, you can work for the whole summer and at the end you, you feel like, you know what, it's not done. Nobody will believe this. And you come back maybe five years later and suddenly you can do it. So the next project is a, is a math project and I won't tell you anything about it. <laughs> Sure. Uh, you're, you write a lot about this moment, this, this whatever you want to call it in Romania, the Perestroika moment, the moment of, of um, you know, the end of the Eastern Bloc. Um, what is it? I mean, is, is that what inspires your writing? Is that is, do you keep coming back to this particular point in time? Um, Will you see yourself essentially choosing the American subject? It's, um, um, I think you, you have to stay with what you know best, and I, uh, I believe, you know, it's, it happens that sometimes you, you are witnessing something really important, and you just have to figure out what is the best angle to, to talk about it. And uh, um, a while ago, I believe that the most important moment was actually the, um, by the way, unfortunately, we did not have perestroika. We had a, our perestroika was like two minutes, and, and uh, for, for those of you, I believe there are a few, young people here. Uh, so in Romania there was like, you know, five or maybe seven days of uh, something that looked like a sort of civil war. There was a lot of shooting and fortunately stopped pretty quickly. It was uh, more like a revolution slash coup d'etat, very complicated military uh, event that took place in December 89. So, uh, and after that there was something called the transition and uh, depending on who you're reading, uh, that's not over yet or it's over and it's forgotten and uh, that transformation when a communist society transforms into, uh, what's that, something else. Um, that's a transition. And I, I thought that, you know, um, you, should, uh, you should write about the worlds that you, you know best. And uh, so basically I came in the U.S. when I was you know, at 26. I didn't grow up here, and I don't know if I really understand what's going on. I, I mean, if I'll ever get it, I'll tell you. But right now it's, it's complicated. I mean... You really have to, to know well, and even when you know everything, you still have to do a lot of research. And, you know, not all the sources are reliable, including, I mean, when you work with historical materials, you really have to um, spend a lot of time. And um, I don't know, it's, uh, I'm writing about a, a period of time, maybe something that I have seen for sure. I never wrote about um, Romania after 96, because I, I, I wasn't there, and I don't know what happened, really. It's a pretty complicated uh, uh, problem. I mean, how, how can you choose something for, for, for which you are, you know, completely familiar and uh, you can really discuss and um, to control the material? You have to really have a very good representation. And I deeply admire people who, you know, who can write historical fiction and really embed themselves in that time, in that historical period. Um, for me, that's, you know, something very difficult.
kind of ingrains it with this uh, fantastic element. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit of the use of um, like kind of absurdity and uh, magical realist uh, techniques in your uh, kind of analysis of uh, Romanian history. Like, why did you choose to do that? Um, so it's uh, um, every time when something um, um, completely illogical happens. You need uh, you need to find some uh, some literary way of uh, representing it, and the, I, I found that it's really quite effective to to use a fantastic motif to to represent something that's completely illogical. On the other hand, in the in the Romanian tradition, there is a lot of uh, um, good heritage in, uh, in 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 using absurd. Like uh, I'm thinking, maybe um, maybe you know about uh, Eugenio Nesco's plays. UNESCO is a, is a French classic. He wrote most of it in French. But before, he left a, a lot of work in, uh, in Romanian. And it's, um, I don't know, it's one of the funniest authors I've ever seen. He's absolutely hilarious, especially, I mean, he, he was a literary criticist for a while, and he shredded apart the whole literary world in the 30s. He was unbelievable. And uh, before him, he later on talked about, uh, about that, uh, there was this uh, this author, which is I think is translated in English, but I think it's a very old version. Uh, Matteo Caragiale's father, it's Ion Luca Caragiale, and uh, Caragiale father uh, wrote four plays. Three of them are uh, comedies, and he also has a huge book with short stories, all of them comedies. And you know, it's the most hilarious comedies I know. Some of them rely a lot on the language, but uh, like for example, one of the um, one of the comedies, the most famous, is about uh, um, a guy who wants to be elected representative to you know in the parliament, and uh, he finds he finds a, a letter, a love letter, from somebody with you know somebody influential, and he's trying to use blackmail um, to get himself on the list, but he's losing the letter again. And it's, it's this kind of this kind of you know comedy about the political world, um, something in about 1880s. So they, there was this heritage in the Romanian culture. Now think like this: take take something that underlines the absurd, like a fantastic motive, and combine it with all sorts of jokes that already have a certain tradition. That creates a combination that I could use. And I was thinking really carefully about this uh, about blending in and uh, this kind of uh, uh, in the first fragment. There is this uh, mockery of uh, language that sounds like biblical and so on, but it's not. Later on, we see that it turns and becomes like that's something very Romanian. It's like you know, it's, we take something very serious and we turn it, we turn it into a total mockery. That's Caragiale, 100%. Used by UNESCO in French, and he made it brilliantly. So it, there is a lot of tradition in this uh, in this sense, I think. Sorry, I couldn't hear one word, and I'd like to... Um, what was the most difficult piece you worked on, and what made it difficult? Oh, uh, I, I can tell you. Uh, it was um, the last work I, um, I, I completed, like the novel I published last year, uh, was about um, one of my close friends. I had to serve in the army, the Romanian army, not that I wanted in any way, but I served nine months. And... Uh, um, I had a good friend in the army, and um, he happened, it happened that he was still serving uh, during the Romanian Revolution, and uh, uh, he was shot. 
And I was, you know, trying to get the events, you know, get the timeline right and uh, try to write the story somehow. And I, uh, for many years, I couldn't. I just, it was something too painful to write. You know, just, I mean, I, I had to somehow um, make this effort and finally um, get to work. And I, I wrote it rather quickly, like in less than one year. It's in like book size. Um, and I, I felt so well. I felt like I, you know, really accomplished something. And but it was, was very difficult to start. So there, I mean, if you if you really want to do it right, it's sometimes the beginning it may be delayed for various reasons. Thank you very much. I thank you.